I invite you to uh, stand with me uh, and read the scriptures if you're able. Uh, today we'll, we'll be uh, reading uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, Brother Steve's message will be uh, on uh, another message on leadership, and we'll be looking at the qualifications. Uh, this chapter is more on some of the responsibilities of uh, leadership, uh, elders in particular. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be uh, strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in the sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give thee understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering <clears throat> bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is true, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also, also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithful, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remember them of these remind them of these things that <clears throat> and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does not does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Their talk will spread like gangrene among them are Hymenius and uh, Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but, God, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, <clears throat> in a great house, there are uh, not 
there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, uh, ignorant controversies. You, you know what they breed. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patient, and enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may, may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> if you'll turn back just a few pages uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll be taking our first a passage from there for the, our study this morning, followed by Titus chapter 1. We continue here in our series on leadership in the church. Uh, Brother Linford kicked off this series by discussing the general role of leadership that every man and every woman has in the world. We are given responsibility to give shape to certain components of the world in which we live. We have responsibility for that. And broadly speaking, that is the nature of leadership. We followed that by looking at the posture of leadership as Christians. And as Christians, the model for leadership is that of service. And I, I want to pause there just to insert a comment. Uh, I, think, I think we really struggle, not only as Christians, but as humans in truly understanding the nature of leadership and it's easy when you are serving under leadership and you observe leaders working to think of leadership as being a position of power and influence that requires subservience of those who are under leadership okay that is a typical understanding very normal but I want you to consider how rarely that's actually the case. And let's just uh, emotionally distance this from ourselves for a bit and think about the business world. So you have a chief executive officer of a company. And, and let's take Coca-Cola, for example. So you have you know, one of the world's great companies. Uh, you can discuss, say what you want about their products. But the company itself uh, has been a great success story and you have the man who runs that company and has literally thousands and thousands of employees and even thousands of vendors 
who provide some products. And then thousands of distributors. And there's a chief executive officer who is responsible to see to it that every facet of Coca-Cola International functions smoothly. And if there is a supply problem in Timbuktu in delivery between one spot and another by a donkey cart, okay, and Coca-Cola provides themselves, they actually deliver Coca-Cola in donkey carts in some parts of the world because it's about a Coke in the hand of every man. That's the vision of the company. And you don't have tr uh, trains and trucks available in all parts of the world, so Coca-Colas are actually delivered by donkey carts in some parts of the world. So if there's a breakdown there, there's a sense in which ultimately the CEO sitting in his ivory tower uh, in Dallas, I think it is, is responsible for that. Now there are many other people who should see to fixing the problem before it gets to the CEO, but there's a sense in which he's responsible. Now you say, well, this fellow then should pretty well be able to tell anybody in Coca-Cola exactly where to get on and where to get off and what to do. Well, can you imagine if he actually has to do that? Uh, it's an impossible task at that point. So he's responsible to serve a few key people, be sure those key people uh, have the skills and abilities to be responsible for the next circles of influence and the next circles of influence. And finally, there's a local fellow who's kind of responsible to see to it that the donkey uh, gets out of bed in time to get the Cokes delivered to the neighboring town. But if it doesn't work, in a sense, the CEO is responsible. And so we say, wow, this must be an incredible position of influence, of power, of authority. Well, in a sense, that's true. On the other hand, he answers to someone. He answers to someone. And somebody's going to assess whether or not he is good for Coca-Cola. And if he's no longer good for Coca-Cola, somebody has the power to say, why don't you go work for another company? And they can take his position away. Okay, who's that? Well, that's the board of directors. Okay, but the board of directors are not Coca-Cola. Who's Coca-Cola? Well, you might say it's the shareholders. So if you own a little stock, one out of millions and millions of stocks, you own one of those stocks, the board of directors and the CEO is actually accountable to you. So this fellow really has a lot of people to keep happy, right? Now, I want you to think about the church. And again, I think we tend, here's what tends to happen. We, we take our image of CEO, particularly those who've never been a CEO, <laughs> take that and put it on elders, pastors, overseers in the local church. And one of the reasons we do that readily is because there are many elders, pastors, overseers in the church who have taken that type of posture. Okay, Jesus says that's a problem. A power posture. Who is the board of directors in the church? Who are the stockholders? Okay, I'm, I'm not going to answer those questions. I want you to ponder that because I think there are deep parallels. What I do want to say is that well, I'm not going to answer one of them, I think. Is that the elders 
are not the CEO, they are the board of directors. And they answer to the one who owns the church. Who owns the church? It's Jesus Christ himself. He purchased it. He is the single stockholder. And it's also why we need a body of elders and not just a single man run local church. Because the primary task of elders now is not to say, what do I think is best for this church? It's to pay careful, disciplined, and systematic attention to what Jesus wants for his church. And how do we know what Jesus wants for his church? And how do we discern what Jesus wants for his church? It's when this group of men that the church has delegated give themselves to the word of God and to prayer. The two primary ways by which Jesus has made known how his church is to function. Those men gather together. There is not one of those men who gets exactly what Jesus wants. It's the body of men. And we see this, again, throughout biblical history. This is how God has established his church, this group of men, whom we're going to look at what their qualifications are. And I want you to have that in your mind. There's a reason these men have to be these kind of men to serve well in this type of capacity. They have to be regular students of Jesus listening to what Jesus has to say, paying attention to what Jesus has to say, because this is his church. They're going to answer to Jesus for how they lead the church. Interestingly enough, they're also going to answer to the church for how they lead the church. They're going to answer to the assembly. But how should the assembly call them to account? By paying attention to how they understand Jesus to want the church to be led. So they too need to give themselves to the word of God and to prayer and assess leadership in light of this. And if we believe the promise of Jesus when he said, I will build my church, then we don't become the primary builders of the church. We pay attention to his blueprint. We pay attention to his directions day by day. And we seek to accomplish his work as he wants it accomplished. So a CEO, for example, at Coca-Cola can't just do exactly what he thinks is best. He's given latitude to act. He's given space to do what he thinks is best. He will be reviewed. He will be called to account by shareholders and by a board of directors and by his employees, by those direct reports that answer to him. And so, again, if you want to keep unpacking the corporate model in the church, I think you have this board of directors that's a group of elders. Sure, they will choose someone to lead the team of elders, and that might be your CEO. But he is on a level footing with this board of directors. They're all, quote, directors. And someone is appointed to begin to coach, to lead, and to guide the organization in keeping with the values of the ownership. In the church, it's Jesus. So we've worked through this sequence. We've looked at the gifts, the diverse gifts of the church, and how that God wants to glorify his son Jesus through these multitude, this multitude of gifts being at work in the world and putting the glory of God on display. We've looked at the distinction between the roles of men and women in the church. 
And this past Sunday, uh, we looked, uh, maybe two weeks ago, I'm getting slightly confused, uh, we looked at the two different offices that we see in Scripture, offices of the elder pastor overseer, as we, we see as one particular office with multiple functions, and then the office of deacon as well. Today we'll be looking at what kinds of qualities does Scripture say these men need to have. And I want you as a congregation to pay attention carefully, thoughtfully, and prayerfully to these qualifications. Because one of the tasks the local congregation has is to assess itself and say, where are men who are demonstrating these qualities presently in our church? And the church is responsible to call those men to serve as servants of the church. Servants of Jesus Christ, servants to the church. And again, if you're going to take a CEO model where the, the kind of senior pastor can just kind of say, well, you do this and you do that, and he becomes this executive, uh, and he can appoint kind of anyone he wants to to get the certain kinds of work done, I think the biblical model breaks down very quickly. The church needs to call its men to the office based on these qualifications, and then those men go to work serving the church according to their gifts to help the church grow in faith and love to become an active, living body of Christ that does the work of Christ in the world. We'll read here from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And the first part of this passage uh, deals with overseers. Again, just remind you, overseer is a function term. It's not a particular office. It's a function of elders. The elders is the broad term. Uh, overseer here refers specific, specifically to one function, and then the second part, verses 8 through 13, addresses the qualifications for deacons. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Then if you'll turn back just a few pages to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This passage uh, uses the term elders and addresses particularly elders, uh, deacons are not specifically mentioned here. 
Titus 1, verse 5. Addressing, the Apostle Paul addressing Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And if you continue reading here, uh, you find something similar to what Brother Jerry read in 1 Timothy, uh, the kinds of things that a man with these qualifications will be responsible to do. And some of these are hard things to do, difficult things to do, but they're work that needs to be done in order for the church to grow and to advance. So we might ask, you read that list, and you say, well, that just kind of takes most everybody out at some point. And uh, as, as pastors, when we get together for any extended period of time, we typically read these books, First and Second Timothy and Titus, together, uh, reflect on the content. These, these are the books of the Bible that are addressed directly to leaders in the church. And we need to pay careful attention to them. I had the privilege of reading these passages with another group of pastors uh, in the Rockingham County area. Pastors, elders, deacons must pay careful attention to the kind of instruction that the Apostle Paul gives. And I think it's appropriate then that the church too, the assembly, pay attention to what the Apostle Paul says to pastors and how they should conduct themselves and the kind of people they ought to be and provide some ongoing feedback and uh, I plan to at least make just a passing comment as to how to address issues when they are perceived to be out of order, uh, as they almost invariably will be at some point in time in the life of an elder who leads a very public life. Now, the first, first line, and uh, what I'm going to do is I've compiled these qualifications into a list that I think comprises 17 different qualifications, and... Uh, two minutes, three minutes apiece will be here. Very long time. Uh, we're going to have to fly through some of these. But hopefully to at least take note of these 17 qualifications, look at just a few distinguishing characteristics uh, for deacons, and then look at how the Apostle Paul wraps up the rewards to those who serve well in these capacities. Both of these lists of qualifications in both Timothy and Titus start out with the basic qualification they must be above reproach. And the story is told of a minister who borrowed this line for his bulletin uh, for the title of his message when he was preaching from this passage. And when he got to the service on Sunday, uh, the title had been misprinted, and it said, Above Approach. And I think that's one way that in the flesh, uh, we as humans sometimes want to be above reproach, is just to distance ourselves from being approached. And uh, that's problematic. That's not what this is saying says that to be above reproach simply means that there are no charges that can ultimately stick. There are issues, there are weaknesses that can be addressed, but, but they don't stick because they're received, they're corrected, 
they're not, not a person who has a long list of charges that just don't get resolved. And so, in a sense, this is the qualification that a person, uh, a, a man who is to serve as an elder, must be above reproach. He's not someone who can be held to charges, and the charges keep sticking, and there's no response. Either he steps down or is, repents and corrects and grows and matures. And it should not be that pastors, elders, and I, I'm, I keep tossing the words around, please hear me. When I say pastor, I'm thinking elder as well. Pastor, again, a function of eldership. But a 19th century churchman in Scotland wrote this, and I think this reflects a healthy understanding of eldership in a congregation where eldership is working well. He says, our people know well the necessity and usefulness of the office of the eldership. All over Scotland, there is a happy prejudice in favor of an elder's visit. No elder could ever say that they did not welcome his visits. The houses and hearts of the people are ever open to those whom they have called to the office. Okay, that's a picture of a healthy elder congregation relationship. That when no one's heart goes, <coughs> when an elder approaches them. But rather, elders are seen as servants of God, servants to the people, as someone who can help you grow in godliness, someone who is here to serve you, someone who is here to help you realize the full potential of the gospel realized in your life, help you to be an effective minister of the gospel. And that is part of being above reproach. They're not somebody who's throwing their weight around, who is making demands of people, who is being critical, but someone who is actually here to serve and help you be uh, an effective believer who seeks to follow after Christ and grow in that way. So we leave that kind of as the first overarching qualification, and then the list of 17. An elder must be devoted to his wife. And we have this line that sometimes translated a one-woman man. <clears throat> Again, you can read different commentaries. There are different ways of nuancing this. Uh, is this phrase here because there was a problem with polygamy in the church? Is this phrase here because there was a problem with divorce and remarriage in the church? Uh, this does not necessarily, I think nearly everyone agrees, preclude a single man from being an elder. But it's saying if a man is married, is in a marriage relationship, he is to be in a devoted, committed, one man, one woman relationship. And this is not just about has he said vows to more, one, more than one woman, but is he exclusively his wife's? Does he belong to her mind, will, emotion, and body? This is about modeling a relationship of faithfulness that reflects well the relationship of Jesus to his church, one of faithful sacrifice and service and care. Second, an elder's children must be in submission, not wild, unruly, and rebellious. This, too, has many different kinds of interpretations, and uh, I think it's in Timothy specifically, uh, Titus, I'm sorry, the word is used believe. They must be believers. And so some people interpret this as saying that an elder's children must all be devoted Christians in order for him to be qualified to be an elder. Uh, most commentators say, no, that's not the case. What this translates best as is faithful children, children who live in obedience, submission, respect, and honor in the home, or a household where the children are obedient, respectful children, contrasted to lawless children, uncontrolled children. And I think 
uh, here's where my theological uh, assumptions come into play, that I don't think there's any man or woman who can guarantee and obligate belief in the next generation. My understanding is that that is an individual response. God calls specifically, calls individually. And if any parent can do a perfect job that guarantees, and this is not a qualification that says if a parent can do a perfect job at home that guarantees that their children are devoted followers of Jesus, then he's qualified to be an elder. Now, some people do take that position. I think it's saying that when you look at the elder's home or the candidate for eldership, you must see an orderly home in which children are obedient and respectful. There is order. There is godly order. And if there are children who are living at home that are reckless, that are lawless, that are disrespectful and violent, that does disqualify a man from the eldership. Because those are the kinds of things that are actually in the control of a father, of a parent, to bring that kind of order, respect, and obedience. That, by law, can be required. What cannot be obligated is a transformation of heart. Now, I think a well-ordered home does tend to grow a generation of people that do surrender their hearts to Christ. It does not obligate it. Uh, again, would be open for more discussion on that, but the home becomes a learning lab, and it's one that's put on display, so you can observe a home. And as you'll see, most of these qualifications, they're not the kinds of things that you can't know about someone. They're observable. They're observable traits, observable characteristics. Okay, the third one is an elder is a faithful steward. And the term here for faithful steward is the Greek word episkopos, which is where the word uh, overseer comes from. Again, it's not an office, but a functional title of the elder. It's what he does. So he is a steward. He's answering to God, doing the work of God in the world, serving Christ in his church, overseeing a congregation, overseeing other believers as a manager for Jesus Christ of God's resources and of Jesus' flock. He takes responsibility for that task. But a steward is not an owner. Elders do not own their churches. Jesus owns the church. Elders are stewards of that. And then fourth, an elder must be humble. Uh, Titus puts it into the negative, not arrogant. An elder must constantly demonstrate the gospel by acknowledging with humility that he, is, he too is not a perfect man, that he too is wrong at times. And when he is wrong, assuming responsibility for that, confessing his sins, and working to restore severed, broken relationships. And that humility requires that he must be willing to accept rebuke and correction. Okay, and this is probably one of the things that uh, is a great test for you. So if you think somebody might in the church might be qualified for an elder, go pick on him. Uh, see how he responds. I'm not necessarily suggesting that, but it's a great test. Uh, can someone be approached? Can someone be uh, addressed with a potential fault? Can they receive it well? And can they respond with grace? They must be able to receive rebuke and correction. And I recall, and I may have told the story here, but it's worth retelling. 
uh, when I felt like I was being kind of overwhelmingly uh, approached about all kinds of things and told where all I was wrong and all my character flaws, uh, many of which I already knew, some of which I didn't think were as bad as they were uh, placed out to be. And a dear old pastor friend of mine said to me one day, well, here, here's, how, here's how you handle that. So you have somebody come and you're sitting down across the table from them and they're telling you exactly how you are not being true to Jesus. You're not fulfilling your task as an elder and all these flaws are coming out. He said, just pull index card out, lay it on the table and you start writing down every charge they make. And you ask questions, so, so I'm, I'm proud, okay? I'm, I'm proud. Trouble, struggle, I'm arrogant, um, ruthless, just... Take it, receive it, write it down. And once they're done, you say, uh, are you finished? And you've got to watch your spirit in here, this, because it could be a tool for abuse, too. And you read it back, and you say, so here are the weaknesses that you see in my life. Maybe some sins that you see in my life. You know, if these things are true, I'm really sorry about that. You don't have to say, I know this is the way it is, unless you do. If the Spirit of God brings an awareness to you, it's a great time to repent and confess your sins. Often we don't see it in the way accusers see it. But it's okay to say, if I'm this way, I would be really sorry. I don't want to be like that. And that's something that a man of God should always be able to say to accusations. I really don't want to be like that. And his next suggestion was, and say to them, would you pray for me? that God would help me to see where I'm like this and give me the grace to change where I'm like this. Now, I can tell you, you try that, uh, you either humble or you get very angry, one of the two. Okay, and I think it's a great way to receive in humility. And that is one of the character qualities of, an, of being an elder. Because humility is essential to service. And if it's, leadership is not done from a posture of humility and service, it very quickly becomes a posture of power and rule, which again undermines the call to servant leadership. And then Timothy and Titus both say that an elder must be gentle, not quick-tempered. Again, there are many different personalities, uh, many different psychological profiles are the type A and the type B people. There are various kinds of profiles, the dominant ones to the uh, much more quiet, retreating, uh, small group kinds of people. None of those are an excuse for not being gentle. Okay? None of them are an excuse for not being gentle. Just because I'm a high D, dominant type of person, uh, tend to be aggressive. When things get hard, you just lean in harder. Uh, because I tend to be that kind of person, does not give me an excuse for being roughshod. Gives no one an excuse for not being gentle. It's a quality that must be a part of all elders who serve in the church. No man will be of any use in the kingdom of God if he's quick-tempered. And the difference between how Jesus demonstrated anger and how most of us tend to demonstrate anger uh, demonstrates the difference between Anger rooted in religion versus anger rooted in love 
compassion, gentleness, and service. Six, an elder must be sober, not a drunkard. This is not just overindulgence in alcohol, though that is where it becomes most apparent. Rather, his body and the natural appetites that we have in our bodies, good as they are, in a fallen world tend to be dominant and tend to take charge. And an elder must be of such a maturity that his bodily appetites do not rule, but rather are ruled. They're under the authority of Jesus Christ, under the authority of the Holy Spirit, and they do not take control. They do not take possession, but rather are under the authority of Christ, under the authority of the man being redeemed. Seven, an elder must be peaceful, not violent. One of the primary tasks of leadership is making peace, uh, sharing the ministry of reconciliation. So he must be a peacemaker. There is, however, a certain weight, as some people describe it, that comes with authority and responsibility. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, most elders, particularly who have served for any length of time, have no idea the kind of weight that is felt when they walk into a room. Okay, we don't know that. We, we, we forget. We lose sight of it until somebody finally tells us. You know, I had somebody tell me uh, out of town, you have no idea the weight of presence that you bring when you walk in here. I said, yeah. And I'll tell you how that's felt by most people. It's felt as power. And when that power is used, it's felt as ruling. So the task is, must be very thoughtful, sober-minded, gentle, peaceful, given to making peace. Doesn't mean the presence gets diminished. Okay, and we have, I think, at least two pastors uh, in the history of this church who I know had a great sense of presence. One of the things that happens, particularly to immature elders, and I speak here from experience, is though there's a sense of presence and weight that is felt in my presence in a situation, what I fear inside, what I have inside is actually fear. I'm afraid. I'm afraid in a difficult situation. And that fear often comes across as power. And so an elder must be one who trusts God, is a peacemaker, is gentle. And that means that fear cannot be that driving force in leadership. Good leadership in the church, servant leadership, has to be rooted in faith and confidence in God. Or it becomes very controlling and power-driven. So an elder must be the kind of person who can walk into those kinds of situations. You may feel the presence. You may feel the weight of authority. But he cannot use that to inflict violence and hurt through forceful, abusive kinds of actions. It's a weight that must be used in gentleness for the sake of reconciliation and making peace. Eight, an elder must also have financial integrity, must not be greedy for gain, must not be one who loves money. And yet, I think the counter to that is he must be in touch with the real world. And pastors struggle with this all the time. And you read pastoral theology, uh, pastors who are full-time pastors, 
acknowledge they tend to kind of lose touch with much of the struggle in the real world. Uh, Finney, whatever you think of him, made the statement, every man who becomes a pastor should spend at least two years in business first. Encounter the laws of economics. Okay, then, uh, be sure that he remains upright in financial dealings, not accused of pursuing money. That doesn't mean he can live on any less than anybody else, okay? Just means he can't be greedy. Nine, an elder must be hospitable. For some, this is a burden. It needs to be exercised with joy, and it can be greatly enriching. Don't have time to say much about this, but just to say I sat with a group of young people, uh, who, all who grew up in a pastor's home, and there was about 40 of these young people, and I did a whole bunch of survey questions with them. And at the end, in a closed-eye vote, I said to them, now I want you to tell me whether given the, the choice yourself, so you didn't have a choice whether or not you grew up in a pastor's home, but given the choice now, what you now know, would you say yes or no to growing up in a pastor's home? And 100% of them, in a closed-eye vote, put their hands up and said, yes, I would choose to grow up in a pastor's home. Okay, and as we began to unpack the reasons why that was, they said, we had missionaries, we had other pastors, we had people in our homes that just opened our world. Some other things they said, we learned to love the church and appreciate the church in ways that our friends just couldn't understand. They had sacrificed. They'd seen parents sacrifice in the church. The love for the church was apparent. And they said, oh, we want to be part of that. And so this, this hospitality, this interaction, comes with a certain burden, comes with a certain reward. Ten, an elder must be a lover of good. Okay, we're all lovers. Does what this man loves. It is what this man loves good. Has he learned to distinguish between the trite and the trivial the trash, and the truly good and beautiful? And does he value the good? Does he love good? Does he love goodness? He must, number 11, he must be self-controlled. Again, it ties back to uh, not drunkenness, but a self-control should be a characterization of every aspect of an elder's life, uh, from his diet, to his time, to his speech, to his exercise, to his relationships, to his sexuality, and to his money. Twelve, an elder must be upright. He must have integrity in his relationships and how he treats others. He must be the kind of guy that what you see is what you get. You're not getting something different than what you see. There's an integrity in place. Thirteen, an elder must be holy. His life must be devoted wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ, externally in the way he lives his life and internally where his affections lie. And then number 14, and this one is particularly distinct from that of deacons. An elder must be able to teach. He must have an aptitude for teaching. And here, I think at Calvary Mennonite Fellowship, with the somewhat illustrious history of some great preachers, we may have weighted this one too highly. This is not, can an elder step behind the pulpit and in a compelling way proclaim to an audience of people, the truth of God's word. That's not what this says. What this says is he has the basic skills of communicating the truth of God to another person, whether it's one-on-one, -on -one, whether it's one to a small group, or whether it's one to a large group. So 
Uh, I'm going to pack this one in here. If we come back in our plan, sermon number eight, and say we need more elders, we're not saying we need more people who equally share public ministry, public teaching time. That, I think, needs to be determined by gifts and abilities. What we do need to say is we need more men who the church identifies as having these basic characteristics who are able to take the truth of God according to their ability and effectively teach, instruct, and help guide people through the use of the Word of God. Sometimes in small groups, sometimes in elective Sunday school classes, sometimes by leading discipleship groups. Do they have the basic aptitude to take the truth of God, explain it in simple ways that somebody else can understand it, and can serve the church by that basic ability? This aptitude for teaching is absolutely fundamental to the position of eldership. And again, one of the reasons for that is that this is Jesus' church, and Jesus has spoken. He does not permit his elders to get up and cuff off about what they think about things. They're responsible to speak for Christ as Christ has already spoken. And so they have to have the ability to discern Scripture, to discern the truth of God, and to explain it in such a way that Jesus is honored and says, yes, that's exactly what I meant. Yes, that's the heart. That's the spirit. That's what I want from my people. And the, the elder cannot conjure that up himself, but he's passing on and he's explaining in today's language, in today's context, what God has spoken throughout history. So that capacity to teach, the ability to teach, uh, is, essential, is an essential ability, and it too can be observed. And I think here we need to have ministries in the church in which brothers can exercise and those gifts can be observed, can be affirmed at some point in time. Okay, and then an elder must be spiritually mature. Positions of authority without spiritual maturity generally lead to the trap of pride. And when pride grows in a man, sin abounds. It explodes. There is a certain arrogance of youth that, given a position, uses it foolishly. Okay, I speak from experience. Leadership is validated by times of pressure and crisis. And so when you see a man who, as he's growing in age, getting older, it doesn't mean you can't have a 25-year-old pastor, okay? but he has to have been tested. And you see a man who has faced a crisis, and in that crisis has spoken the truth of God and has brought clarity to that crisis. You see a man who has faced some incredible pressures, maybe in home, in a relationship, at work. He's been under tremendous pressure, and in the context of that pressure, he has found his orientation toward Christ and toward service and humanity. There you have a man who has the basic abilities to grow as an elder and as a leader. And then 16, an elder must be respectable doesn't mean everybody likes him. There's a big difference between respect and liking. We tend to like people with certain kinds of giftings. We tend to like people with certain kinds of aptitudes. We tend to like people who have a certain fuzziness about them or steel about them. And we have preferences about those things. This is not about likability, it's about respectability. It means that there is no credible witness to an ongoing sinful behavior that is disruptive to the body of Christ. And then 17, an elder must be an example to the flock. 
This one from 1 Peter chapter 5. I hinted at throughout Timothy, <coughs> Timothy and Titus. Elders are to be examples of Christian conduct. In, and we just make a sweeping statement, all facets of life. A pastor or an elder should be someone your sons can pattern their lives after. Should be someone that you say, that kind of person uh, I would be happy for my daughter to marry. He must be an example. The kind of person that is worthy of following. And then just to conclude this, suppose, and I shouldn't say suppose, let's just say when. When an elder's weakness has become apparent in light of these qualifications. And I'm going to distinguish between weakness and the absence of the quality. Okay, there is not a single elder who has served in this position other than the chief shepherd himself who has fulfilled this perfectly. When those weaknesses become apparent, what do you do? What do you do in a congregation? 1 Timothy 5:19 warns against accusing an elder quickly and flippantly. Because the congregation has entrusted, has assessed and then entrusted responsibility. And if a culture develops in which elders can be lunch at most any table, uh, that community will fail. So elders cannot be accused flippantly. However, we're taught steps in, as to how to approach an elder. They should not be unapproachable. Okay? They should just be above reproach. They should be approachable. And the approach is you go speak to an elder. You don't find somebody else to speak about an elder. You go speak to an elder. If that does not go well, you find someone else to help you speak to the elder. If that does not go well, you address the elders. And the elders are responsible collectively to address the issues of an elder. And elders at times have a responsibility to bring that to the church. And for the church to discern whether or not this elder is qualified or disqualified based on assessments that the Bible gives us by which to assess it. I'm not doing well here. Um, I will do better. Second office is deacons. And I just want to note, the basic qualifications are the same. The ability to teach, aptitude for teaching is not present. There is a less rigorous demand theologically for deacons. It simply says that they must embrace wholeheartedly Orthodox Christian faith and the doctrine of the church. Doesn't mean they have to be able to explain it well. An elder must be able to teach the doctrine of God and the doctrine of the church. But he must have a clear understanding of the gospel. And he must rest in the power of the gospel for his own salvation because that deeply colors the ministry of a deacon. Whether or not he is saved by grace through faith or whether he is somehow fleshing it out by a set of laws and codes. Uh, a deacon, is, it's a ministry of mercy. And if the mercy of God is not felt and deeply experienced, it will not be a ministry of mercy. It will be a ministry of keeping people in line and being sure everybody behaves. The gospel informs how we care. And then they are to be tested. And it specifically says they should be tested first. Then they are to serve. They should have stable families. Uh, the qualification is pretty clear there. Families that are well-ordered. Wives are also addressed for deacons. And I think it's due to the sensitivity of the diaconate. 
and the significant influence of the deacon's wife in his ministry, for good or for harm, that these character qualities for women, the wives of deacons, are also addressed. And again, the husband of one wife, a good father, ability and track record of discipling children in love and disciplining so there is order in the home. And then wives, dignified, respectable, not slanderers. Again, deacons get lots of information. And if that information gets used, uh, that's a problem. And so wives of deacons cannot be slanderers, cannot use information they have as deacons and deacons' wives uh, against people in hurtful ways. Must be sober-minded, self-controlled, not, so, not self-indulgent. And we have the reward that is offered. He says, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Jesus uses the same Greek word for deacon to describe his own ministry. And I insert the word here from paraphrase of Mark 10. Whoever would be great among you must be your deacon. Okay, and I think Brother Linford made this clear. Deacons are simply the ones who provide official leadership for diaconate ministry. We are all called to the diaconate ministry. We're all called to the care of God's people. And again, I, I have to insert here, I have been so deeply blessed just in the past few weeks again of some of the stories I hear of some of you brothers and sisters who hear about a specific need in the church. And you have not stepped back and said, you know, pastor ought to do that, the deacon ought to do that, we're going to call them. You've stepped in and begun to serve, to care, to sacrifice. That's the culture of a congregation at work. That's a group of people who are following after Jesus. And from a body of people that serve each other that way, the congregation can begin to call people who take leadership in those areas. If the congregation does not serve in that way, we don't have people to call. We're taking a shot in the dark. Okay, it's true for elders and it's true for deacons. This passage, whoever would be great among you must be your deacons. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to receive diaconal care, but to serve as a deacon and to give his life a ransom for many. And to pastors, the Apostle Peter says, when the chief shepherd appears, the elder who has served well will receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. The chief shepherd, this is his church. But he needs people to care for his people. And we're responsible to assess these qualifications and with care, wisdom, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, seek those out among us who are working this way in the church and call them to positions of responsibility as elders and as deacons so that the church can prosper and grow and be built up in faith and love. Let's pause for just a few moments. Father, these qualifications do sound an awful lot like the chief shepherd, the chief deacon. And we acknowledge 
that we are not yet as Christ. Strengthen us by your grace in areas of weakness. Grace us with the power of your Holy Spirit to do your work in the world, each in our individual calling and responsibility. And then, Lord, we're deeply aware that we do need more people to serve this congregation and to serve this community. So grant us wisdom as we move forward in discerning who among us bears these qualities in increasing measure. Who could gather with the men you've already called to work in advancing your purposes in this congregation, in this community, and in every facet of the world in which you give us opportunity. May you guide us in this time. In the name of Jesus, we pray.